Hi, I'm Matt. I'm Annie AK. And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men, trying to answer the question, is it Still Great Bob? This week we're discussing Season 1, Episode 8 of The Hobo Code, written by Chris Provenzano and directed by Phil Abraham, which originally aired September 6, 2007. Number one hit movie that weekend at the box office was James Mangold's remake of 310 to Yuma, starring Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. Rob Zombie's Halloween dropped to number two, and Superbad was still hanging out around number three. After four weeks as the number one song in the U.S., Beautiful Girls loses its crown to Fergie's Big Girls Don't Cry. Oh, that's an apt song. Yup. <laughs> also, I can't believe that 12 years later, I'm still telling myself to watch 310 to Yuma. I've never seen it. Me neither, but I wanted to. I like it. It's good. I've been meaning to rewatch it. All right. So Mad Men, The Hobo Code, this week on Mad Men. As a result of a surprise bonus at work, Don continues his exploration of counterculture in the village. The Office, well... Most of them celebrates Peggy's professional victory and Sal is pursued by two people with romantic intentions. Mm. So I guess before we, we, we jump in a little bit, what were what was everyone's thoughts in response to this this episode? Because I think there's a couple common themes we could talk about that kind of f- thread their way throughout everyone's story in this episode. So what were what were your initial thoughts, folks? I definitely could have sworn that the salve the Sal revelation came later. That one struck me because I, I was very surprised. I hate Pete. Still, turns out. Uh, not my favorite Don, gotta say. Yeah, I agree with all those, all those takes. Not my favorite Don. Still my least favorite <laughs> Pete. Well, my least favorite person is all. Pete, all the Pete's so are your least favorite. That Pete. hasn't changed. I think Joan is doing something kind of interesting in this episode too. Mm-hmm. Is uh, the first time in a while I've been really curious about her, so that was nice. Um, I don't think I really expected to continue to have young Don Dick Whitman flashbacks, so that was interesting and fun mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. What about you, Matt? What about me? Yeah, no, I, this was probably one of the first episodes in this rewatch that it was hard not to stop after I watched it. And I didn't want to get too kind of far ahead of, of where we were recording, but when it ended, I was like, I want to watch the next one. Um, so I, I definitely enjoyed it, but also like, yes, and everything that both of you just said. Um, and I was actually doing some, some extracurricular reading, um, on on this episode, and one of the things that's in the uh, carousel, it's the Mad Men Companion book by by Matt Zoller Sites, Sites Zoller Zoller Sites ZS, um, that I referenced earlier, and I was kind of flipping through it, and something that he pointed out. I mean, obviously, we can we can talk about it later, and the idea of like total ownership, I don't think is is subtext um, throughout the the episode, but it's it's it is textual. But something that the book pointed out was the idea of doorways and not just specific to you know don leaving the uh the cannabis party 
on the cannabis and Miles Davis party, excuse me. Um, but the idea of like, and we'll talk, we'll get into it, but Peggy being invited with, with the writers and who can, who can enter doors and stuff with the elevator at the beginning of the episode and who can enter and who can exit and how that's defined and given by, by those kind of with, with the privilege in the episode and things like that. So yeah, no, I thought it was, it was interesting. I, I enjoyed watching it. So, Hmm. so do we want to get into Peggy first? Ah, oh, Peggy. She continues to vex me in so many ways. She's, I mean, because she is one of our ostensibly, you know, quote unquote heroes of the show. She was like one of the very first people we met. She was this like sweet, unassuming girl who's just trying to make it in the big city. So she's garnered our sympathies. But even from the very first episode, she makes these choices that really test my affection for her. Mainly choices involving Pete. Uh, how do we feel about her after all this? She's very, she's what I would call a complicated character. A layered character. It's frustrating because I like everything that she's doing except for the Pete thing. But that the Pete thing is so difficult for me to understand and also hard to overlook. Can you tell me more about what you mean by hard to overlook? Well, it's not like overlook, but it's hard for me to be like 100% on Peggy's side or 100% in understanding with her character when she makes these choices about Pete that I just don't get or think that I wouldn't make myself. Or, And then I, you know, I feel, now I feel guilty about um like peggy's not the one that's married (laughs) pete's the ones doing the bad things here so it's pete i think that should probably get the entirety of my dislike but i mean you want to think that peggy is smart enough not to know or smart enough to know not to go down this route uh i mean it's not enough to completely completely write her off but at the same time I know I've been in a position where I've made some really dumb choices, even in the moment going, this is really dumb, but like my feelings are pushing yeah, yeah. in this other way. But that doesn't, that doesn't even make me more sympathetic to her. It's more like I, when I don't like myself for the choices that I make sometimes, I don't like her as much for the same reason. I don't want to have to face that reality. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm wondering too, and I'm just thinking about like in the last eight episodes and i mean this episode specifically we kind of get don's um air quotes superhero end quotes um origin story and his 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 kind of like you know rosetta stone and things like that um we've seen in new amsterdam kind of insights into to peter's background we have we have insights into to who roger is and i think definitely to even though we haven't met um any anyone from like Betty's like family upbringing we know lots about how she perceives her her mother and how that's kind of you know informs who she is as an adult now and we haven't yet seen much of Peggy outside work mm. mm-hmm. right so as as I kind of sit here and as we're we're talking through it and yeah I don't respectfully get what she necessarily like sees in Pete myself um but I don't know if we know enough about who Peggy is yet outside of, of kind of work and, and the office context and, and things like that that might or 
would, I guess, should, could, woulda, shoulda, coulda, um, inform her decisions that way. Because, like, I, like, Pete's restless and angst-ridden and, like, seemingly not happy with some of the life choices he's made. But, like, he doesn't seem like I can fix him, like, Reclamation Project that, like, maybe Peggy would be, like, into. But, like, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't understand it myself. But I also don't know if we know enough about Peggy yet to kind of do that diagnosis. Um, I do want to kind of, after Peggy and, and um, Peter have their their next kind of episode of their affair in, in the office with the door closing again there's that 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 door motif and then being being blocked by the the couch temporarily um and her her blouse rips and peggy and don have that that interaction where don notices the blouse is ripped and she's like oh yeah i caught it on something maybe i'll like i'm thinking of getting a second second uh shirt to, to stare at work or to have it work with me at my desk and we we know that that don does that we've we've seen him do it it doesn't and the reason he he changes shirts a lot is is the same reason that peggy's blouse was torn and don has this kind of look on his face because he he obviously knows well no i don't think he knows yet that peggy knows about midge right he doesn't know i don't think he yeah okay but when she but when peggy says it's like oh i'm thinking about like doing this and he's like it's kind of like taking back like Oh, okay. And it's like it it could be read a couple different ways, right? Is it just one of those things where like you're making small talk and like he noticed her blouse was ripped, so he asked cuz he was curious, but he was like, "Actually, I didn't need that much information. What are you doing?" Or is it like there's something more like, "Oh, what do you know? Do you see me in a way I didn't think you see me before?" or something like that. But also it it kind of leads me to the question, do we think and I guess we'd have to keep watching to see if this this merit has much merit to it. But is Peggy adopting more Don like traits? Right? Is she like now that she, you know, is kind of invited to to write copy and then is invited for the celebratory drink after that that pitch meeting, um, with the uh the come to Jesus moment as as Don says in, in the pitch, um do we think she's becoming more Don like? Right? So, yes, no, thoughts? A few things in what you said I want to address. One, I that is interesting because I think I've been taking for granted that Peggy's identity as how I've perceived it has really just been relegated to work. It's not it I may just be like filling in the blanks myself about where she comes from. As for um Don's reaction I was watching to see how he would react to when she responded to the comment about the shirt. I, do, I don't really think that he thought much more of it other than like, huh, that's kind of weird. So I didn't see all that. But, um, you know, this, this shows the, the, the king of vague, complex responses that, you know, you can see a lot of different things in it that may or may not be there. Uh, as for Becoming Dawn, I do think the parallels between the two of them are probably the closest than any other two characters in the show. Um, and we are starting to see it. Uh, something that happens in the show a lot are people who see not the actual person themselves, but these like sort of um, types that they are, the ideal of what they are. You know, we see Pete do it all the friggin' time with Dawn. I think personally that's how he sees Peggy. 
not so much as a person, not even as like a sexual uh, ideal, just as this thing that's somehow in his life that he can like mess with or not. So, and I don't know if even Don sees Peggy as an actual person, so it's not really occurring to him. It's probably how he actually sees all the women around him, and that's why he see, seems so easy to, to mess around with them and, you know, you know, invite them to Paris or expect his wife not to flirt with his boss, that kind of thing. I'm not even sure that Peggy sees Pete as a person. Uh, there's something about just the way she knows so little about him beyond work and occasionally sees a little bit of his wife that there's something very still girlish to her, like an innocence that Don doesn't necessarily possess. Like maybe she it's still this fairy tale where she's this person that someone like Pete wants, despite the fact of having this unbelievably amazing wife in Trudy. Um, and, you know, Kind of like how when Pete thought that he and Don would now be friends because he's a married man. It's almost like Peggy was like, oh, I'm a copywriter, though technically not really. Pete's going to want me. They're all going to accept me into their club. It's going to work out great. What do you guys think? As far as keeping the spare shirt, I definitely... Well, I didn't even really pay attention to Dawn as much in that scene because my brain was just, oh, Peggy is asserting herself as one of the boys now. She yeah. has sex in the office. She writes copy. She keeps the spare shirt. And I that, that I think we get at least a little bit of insight into who she wants to be in the Do you office. Think that, um she wanted Don to pick up on what she was saying. Ooh, interesting. Maybe a little bit subconsciously. We've talked a lot about various people wanting to impress Don or be Don. Um so you know it's understandable to me that in that in that comment she makes she's really saying like, "Look, I'm I'm like you." <laughs> We're peers now. It's a very different approach to how Joan tries to work her way up the corporate ladder, isn't it? Joan just cannot and will not be happy for Peggy. <laughs> not at all. And she and Peggy just can't please Joan either. Because Joan is not happy. When Peggy is writing copy and moving up that way, just but she also expresses um, not disapp like disapproval in a way of if Peggy was you know sleeping her way to the top. Mm -hmm. Like she's also not really here for that. <laughs> well, because I mean, Joan has like kind of made her own rules to make it to the top and just sort of snuck her way in there, just kind of unassumingly the DL and using her abilities as a very attractive, very charming, very capable woman. And uh, you've got Peggy, who is far more blatant about it, even though she didn't, you know, she just kind of fell into copywriting things. She's just kind of like, hey, I'm here, guys. I'm like on your level, as we said a few times already. And I think Joan has her power, but at no point, I think, is any of the men going to acknowledge it. And the women kind of don't either, except they're just like, oh my gosh, you take care of us. You are so good to us, all that stuff. 
Yeah, and I think going back to that idea of like doors and like who's invited in and who's who's recognized and things like that, I, I find it interesting that I mean as as this despite from the, the ongoing or the now ongoing affair with, with Peter, who has nothing to do with the Bell Jolie account, um Peggy's successes so far in terms of her career advancement and, and writing copy have nothing to do with her existence as as a sexual being, uh-huh. right? Which I find interesting, especially when Joan suggests that oh well, people get up or get up around here by what what's down below, not not in their heads or or something like that. She says, um, but to kind of build off the point that you were just making Annie it's it's how those with power and privilege are like the men of Sterling Cooper in this case how they view and how, how they view Peggy and Joan differently and how they invite them into their their club or their realm or, or don't for various reasons right um because they they potentially view Peggy as as less threatening and less of a a sexual being in the same sense of as contrasted with Joan, it's Freddie and Donna are inviting her and giving her the chance to, Oh, that's actually an okay idea. Maybe there's something there. Yeah, no, you can, you can come out. with that. Whereas like Joan isn't given those same opportunities. And I want, and I wonder slash think how, how much of that has to do with the person, the person, how much that has to do with, a, who Joan is, but then B, the persona that she then puts on. Because we, we've talked about with Joan before, um, I think on pod, definitely off pod, about um, using kind of the, the the systems that exist to her advantage and, and trying to find her own power and, and, and working within that. Um, but then is that persona limiting her because the men <laughs> trademark um the patriarchy aren't aren't willing to give her the same opportunities because she's she's the the venus not you know the non-venus secretary i don't know what do we think about that hmm yeah i mean peggy is someone who is even though her copy was coming from the perspective as a woman it wasn't you know following like the fem the rules of being woman her success isn't because she is woman it is in many ways kind of in spite of for better or for worse uh i forgot where i was gonna go with this um yeah i mean it's so much easier to i mean we see this in so many like on a macro and micro level even if it's like mean girls in high school kind of situation it's so much easier to lash out laterally than it is to get mad at or attacked um, upwards, you know, or against the, the the system that allows people to be pit against each other on the same level. And I, I think this is just one of many situations where you see this happening. It's it's Joan not being able to see the greater um, the greater system of that you know that's keeping her down, that's forcing her to use what was probably I assume uh, was often used against her, you know, as a younger woman or even as a young girl 
I mean, it's so hard for, for Joan to see just the wider um, system that she's trying to operate in and trying to um, not subvert, but to kind of survive in. And then you've got Peggy coming in and showing her that, one, it's possible to succeed without having to jump through all those hoops and trying to navigate and try not to shake things up too hard, but to also... Uh, that she may not have had to do all the things that may have made her feel kind of gross and not like herself so much. And it seems like it's just being handed to Peggy. Like, I understand that kind of resentment. But I also do not condone spreading the rumor that oh, she's totally sleeping her way into the right. town. Also, not right. great. Another thing that I was thinking about with Joan is that she may or may not have used her sexual relationship with Roger to get to her position of mm-hmm. power in the office. I think that we all kind of think that maybe she didn't. Those two things happened simultaneously. I'm sure her position is helped by that, but I'm not saying that Joan slept her way to the top. But, because we just don't know whether, she, you know, that was a factor or not. But any anyway, if her affair with Roger came out, that's the only thing that anyone would think of her. You Mm -hmm. know, her work would be basically erased. And the fact that we have Peggy actually doing the work to move up in the company, if Peggy is successful that way, that's, I think, maybe in Joan's mind, also going to erase the work that Mm -hmm. she did to get to where she is. Because, oh, I know that... If anybody finds out about this affair, it doesn't matter how this really came about. I slept my way to the top, but no one will be able to say that about Peggy because, well, they, you know, maybe they could if they found out about the Pete thing. But in reality, that you know, Peggy didn't do that. She's taking this other way. So I wonder if Joan is worried about protecting the work that she's done to get where she mm-hmm. is. You know, if Peggy takes a different route, then that could invalidate the route that Joan took. Which is an unfair um, burden that is placed upon successful women. Uh, Even still today, when you see one woman kind of uh, not, you know, succeeding and then does something or something is revealed about her and you're like, no, it's ruined for all the rest of us. It is such an unfair burden to place upon that one woman at the top. But and unfortunately does happen and it still sucks. Peggy is so obviously into Pete for whatever reason, whether it's the idea of Pete or Pete himself, which I personally don't understand. Um, but by comparison, you know, Joan, it doesn't even always seem like she's playing a game or teasing him or anything or trying to push him away. Do we really think that she's actually into Roger? I don't really. <laughs> I don't either. There's never, like, it's, if it is, it's, not very blatant at all. She's always keeping him at an arm's distance. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. We don't really know who Joan is, do we? Like, in the same way that, like, we're talking about, we only know Peggy through the context of work. I mean, we we mm-hmm. know... The episode spent that time a couple weeks ago with, with Joan when we when we found out that her and Roger are having an affair, and that was probably the most kind of time that... that independent independent ish um not office time we've we've seen joan with but i don't i don't know if we know just to echo my point about peggy before but with joan if who she really is because i even think 
when we see her with Roger that a performance and I don't mean that in necessarily like a, like a, a positive or a negative space I just think it it's very much she is on um and is is wearing kind of different masks that we all you know, at various times wear for various reasons like throughout the day but I don't know if we know who Joan is. Mm-hmm. I do know, I think, after this episode, that Joan is a person that must be in control of all situations. And I think that we already kind of have talked about that and already believed that. But I think that she is mad at the women in the office whenever they're giving Peggy the attention, congratulating her on her copy being presented because she walks in the room and she goes, oh, don't look for me. I have errands to run, but nobody really cares what she's <laughs> up to. So I, she, I think she's a little mad that she's not, you know, the person in the center of the scene there. And I think that stems from, you know, wanting to control what's going on in the office, especially um, what's going on in, in regards to her. But also just her very controlled and understated dancing in the bar. Like, yeah, she'll participate, but she's not giving herself up over to it the way that the other women are. She's dancing with Kinsey, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the one. They had a little thingy thing. <laughs> it is a very controlled dance, though, and I think it's someone who is so also just very aware of her own personal physicality and yeah i mean she's not hard to watch i gotta say but i i she knows it so we've talked a little bit now just about kind of systems and and perpetuations of systems and how they're used and how those systems are are oppressive but according to don draper there are no systems it's all a lie and the universe is indifferent so, did we want to did we want to pivot to talk about Dawn, or do we have any kind of concluding thoughts on like the Peggy Joan Pete stuff? I mean, Dawn gets to say that because he's part of the system that is, uh, yeah, instating itself. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it needs to be reiterated. Like, we don't have to dwell on it. But Pete is the fucking worst, and I hate him <laughs> so much. God, he is the worst. Him telling Peggy, "I do, I don't like you like this," is the meanest, most selfish, cowardly thing that he could have done in that moment and i hate him well i mean it was the kind of thing that he tried to pull on trudy when she first came in trying to celebrate and he's like see what happens when you come in the middle of the work day we fight like it's her fault that he's being pissy and acting out of his own guilt after he turned over the cushion that he just had sex with another woman on i, I oh hated my God, that so much it was so gross and it made me mad. And sh- Because you can see, you're like, oh, he obviously feels guilt mm-hmm. about this. So it's not that he's just like a dickhead running around doing whatever he wants without a care. Which, in my mind, is almost kind of forgivable. Because I'm like, if you feel guilt about it, just don't do it. <laughs> it's not a hard choice to not have sex with someone in your office. He knows what's wrong. And then he tries to make Trudy feel right. bad about it. And once she pushes back, he backs down because he's a fucking little coward. Uh, and because Trudy is amazing and isn't taking any of that shit. Uh, so he just turns around and tries it on someone he has power over in more than one way. Someone he literally, he, you know, he, oh, I hate his face when um, Peggy mentioned that her copy was being presented. And you just see this, like, 
glower come over him and just immediately has to literally top her somehow to keep her down. We can move on. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew that I still hate Pete so much and he hurt my It feelings. is not an episode of Still Great Bob unless we spend some time talking about how much we hate Pete, even in, if he is being particularly sympathetic in an episode. All right. Okay. Well, now we've done it, so we can move on. <laughs> Back to John and how he's an agent of the patriarchy. So, Prohibition Dawn, sorry, sorry, Prohibition Dick Witter. Witter? What's his name again? Dick Whitman? Whitman? <laughs> Prohibition Depression Era Dick yes. Whitman? Yeah. I wrote in my notes. <laughs> sorry. I wrote in my notes, flashback to baby Dick, <laughs> and then I had to also write in my notes, oh, well, that's terrible. <laughs> So let, let's, let's, before we get to the flashback stuff and that really awesome Wizard of, Wizard of Oz reference that this episode has at the, at the, uh-huh. at the party, um, let's talk about our buddy Burt Cooper for a second and his conversation with Don because he gives him over what would be, I think it, it's what, like $2,500, $1,960? Something like that. I don't know. It's over 20 grand in 2019 dollars. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's over 20 grand in, in 2019 dollars. It's I, a bonus I, I would still be happy with again. now. Yeah. Right? It is only like $1,400 shy of Pete's whole yearly salary. salary. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway. So. He basically gets this money for being like, like a heartless bastard yeah. that doesn't care about anything. At first, it sounds like he's going sucks. to pay him a compliment about how hardworking and diligent he is, and and Bert goes, "But also, you're completely self-interested, just like me. I like that you're like me that now, way." Now let's have an Anne Rand book club. Sounds great. <laughs> No. And the face no, that Don is making when he first hears these words and he realizes, I thought I was the good guy in this story. Because Don mm-hmm. loves to see himself as the good guy. And no, no, people know he's, people may still think he's a good guy, but not for the reasons that he thinks it is. So do we think this is why he's suddenly just like, so we're going to go to Paris now. We're going to run away with my mistress and not tell my wife. And I'm going to abandon my kids for a bit. It's going to be great. He gets a bonus for being a selfish bastard. His feelings get hurt by that. So his response is to do something extremely selfish and (laughs) bastardly. Self-awareness, not his strong suit. (laughs) So proud. Which I think, like, does track with, like, the level of, like, not to go to Lucy from Peanuts, like, with my dime psychology. Um, But, like his level of like narcissism too but then his level of like what i would almost go as far as saying like self-loathing that's like that's like tied with that because it's he he feels seen or recognized by bert in that moment because everything that don has seemingly done based on what we've seen so far is about reinventing himself and we we see kind of that that talk that that little dick has little dick whitman um 
has with with the itinerant the itinerant traveling or i guess traveling is itinerant the itinerant worker um who who stops by the uh the whitman farm there and it be it's like anytime it becomes too real for don he feels the need to seek out that freedom and run so like maybe i don't think it's necessarily mm. that i don't think it's necessarily that he like is offended by what cooper sees in him or disagrees and says hey that's not me it's oh sh- i've been here too long i've been here too comfortable they're starting to see he sees me for who i am he says that that's good but like this is the image i've i've created so like if he sees me as completely self-interested as someone who you know might like to live in the the realm of objectivism um i need to leave before they find out like the other things about me right because in that moment i would suspect don feels so stripped down and taken aback both by the generous bonus and that conversation that he needs to run which i think is different from last week when we watched red in the face when roger came over for the dinner and started talking about you know don dropping his g's and like swimming hole and like stuff like that where don really cleverly is like oh time for you know commercial break brought to you by more liquor and he can handle that and then keep the wall up but with bird it seems like he can't keep that wall up which i think is is interesting and what promotes don's kind of probably self-destructive pattern to to kind of blow up his life and run again like he has seemingly done before um Mm -hmm. i also think it's interesting too in that that conversation that dick and the the vagrant have because the vagrant's like oh i used to work in new york i had a family new york's great it's a land of possibilities it which then ties into the the conversation over dinner and drinks that uh, Elliot and Sal have have later on in the episode about little compartments full of possibilities. Um, but you have this, this, this vagrant who used to have a family in New York and kind of ran and left all of that and is, you know, riding the rails in this like kind of romantic notion of like kind of itinerant lifestyle. And he tells little Dick that that's the happiest he's ever been. And I think Dick Whitman seems to have taken that to heart even in his adult life. Being seen and being known is a very difficult thing. And I think, I don't think you're exaggerating at all to, to call it self-loathing. I can pers- I really hate that to say this, but I really can actually relate. You know, I've been to Starbucks a couple of times and when they know my name and know my order and immediately my brain goes, I have to go somewhere else now. I understand yeah. it. Been there. I totally yeah, understand it. But um, he he just takes it to this real extreme that is not just self-destructive. It shoots out shrapnel in all directions. It affects everyone around him. And uh, yeah. that's not good. Um, and, you know, Midge is his manic pixie dream girl. So showing up and being like, hey, Paris, now let's just go. And she's like, I have plans. <laughs> I, as you can see, I have guests and, uh, I actually even like some of them, maybe even as much as I like you, if not more, which, um, which he comes to the conclusion that he even, that she even loves one of them. And it's, uh, that just doesn't jive well with the fairy tale that he builds in his head. Everyone has all these fairy tales in these head, in their heads that, 
just a fantasy that seems to set them up for nothing but disappointment because none of it seems to be rooted in their real life and in their real selves. Then again, I mean, considering where Don came from originally as Dick, being told very early on that he's a whore child, lovely, and not worth much, and just constantly reminded that he is a mistake, basically. I mean, you can see where he comes from with not wanting to even look at the person that he is underneath everything. I wonder if it's difficult, and I'm sure it is. It's not anything I'm wondering. <laughs> I just believe it's difficult. for. I think it's difficult for Don to spend time with Midge and her friends because it's just foreign to him to have people cultivated around you spending time in your home that you love and respect as other human beings. Because we've seen parties at his house. <laughs> All his they all suck. suck. Even having the boss that he respects come over just doesn't end well. It's all performance. He doesn't have a best friend. No. And maybe he thought that his best friend was Midge because she seems to be a person that he shows a lot of himself mm-hmm. to. Yeah. But not but that's that's not worth trading time spent with her real friends. Yeah. And that's why she's not willing to leave this party that they're having to go to Paris with him. Mm-hmm. This is a it just made me think of like 500 Days of Summer and Zoe Deschanel's character and mm-hmm. how he's like, oh, my God, we're in love. We're so, it's so perfect. And just co- he just constantly, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character just constantly becomes disappointed when she has an opinion that diverges from him and is a whole other person that comes with all this own personal baggage and doesn't fit into his idea of, of love and romance and fantasy and fairy tales, as I've said a million times already. I mean, she's she's so willing to call him out on the shit, but at the same time, she doesn't ever really hold it against him, and that's probably super ideal for someone like Don and all the crap he, he pulls. Mm-hmm. What's that guy's name? I always forget his name, because I have, like, name blindness. Roy? Roy. Roy? I think it's Roy. Roy um... is always willing to call him out on his shit, though. But... Because he loves Midge, letting it slide, kind of. What do we... So Don, very, like, when he looked thinking back to, to Babylon and when they're at the gaslight, and, like, how out of place Don seemed then, and then, like, he... And then thinking about, like, this party, and, like, yeah, there are moments where he's like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm the one who can leave and, and the cops won't, won't look at me because I have the, the... I'm clothed in, in respectability, and like maybe we don't know enough about who Don slash Dick are between in the in between time between you know him as the child and and who we know him to be in nineteen sixty, but do we think Don is completely who others at like the office and who Roy views him to be, or do you think that there's a part of Don inside that kind of if he had made some some different choices and cultivated a, a different image, he has a bit of that bohemian kind of rebel spirit in him, or is he just young Richard Nixon? Hmm. 
It seems from this flashback that Don places a lot of importance on the lessons that he learned from, you know, this this working traveler that stopped by his house. But it doesn't seem like he... Like, this episode was called The Hobo Code. It doesn't seem like Don has put any interest in living that quote-unquote hobo lifestyle. So he's trying his best to do what is expected of him, just like everyone else in this show. But he also has this inability to fully show himself to people, and that's why we see him, I think, running between these women and why no one is truly close to him why the people who are commending him on his personality and like work choices like Burt Cooper it's things that Don hates about himself like no one is allowed to be close to him so I feel like he maybe took these lessons from the hobo man and applied them incorrectly (laughs) he didn't really take these lessons and put them against his own life in a way that is fulfilling the way it was for the man he met he just basically I think has said okay never truly settle down but he can't even commit to that enough to not have the expectations of his wife and children and his fancy job that are still tying him in place yeah, there's definitely something to that uh, traveling man who seems very, who seemed very at peace with himself, but he had what appears to be some foundation in who he is as a person. When Don has just mm-hmm. constantly been trying on all these different um, hats, so to speak, you know, he's a respectable businessman, but all the time you don't get the sense that he knows who he himself is. Like maybe there is a good moral inner core in there that occasionally drives him, you know, um, that occasionally pops up in really inconvenient times. Like when he's trying to cheat on his wife uh, with what's her face. I'm really bad with names, not Midge. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. Rachel. I remembered it. I remembered it, guys. Let it be known. Uh, Or uh, the part of him that just like made his face turn into that big old frowny face when Cooper's talking about how self-interested he is. I think there's something there, but it's never been developed, never been allowed to come out, never been been given a voice to speak even when it's really hard. He's kind of done the more cowardly thing, which is like everyone respects this kind of guy. I'm going to portray myself as that guy and even sometimes convince myself I'm that guy. But... He isn't fully him. He isn't this full American ideal boy next door becoming successful corporate man who uh, saves the day all the time. This hero. So, you know, it's imposter syndrome to like the nth degree. And it's like you said, Melissa, I don't think he quite got the point of being this respectable man. It's kind of like his armor. So when everyone's just like, oh... You can't go out there, and he kind of puts them down being like, you can't go out there, I can. It's that little shred of something that he has to hold on to that makes him think, okay, this is, I made the right choice. I am in a position of authority because of it. Don is so exhausting. Don would be exhausting to be around, and it would also be exhausting to be Don. (laughs) (laughs) 
so many levels but like you can also understand why he constantly is at the center of things and everyone just wants his attention and his approval whose approval does don want bigger question <laughs> big question <laughs> oh and i mean maybe we'll never be able to answer that but i mean it does feel like he he's doing these things for a reason we don't We've talked so much about what those reasons might be, and, you know, we still don't know. So if everyone is out here trying to figure out who to be so X person or X system will accept them, I assume that there has to be that for Don as well. It, there's got to be someone or, or everyone. This just starts with it. Everyone who doesn't offer his approval, uh, offer their approval for him, though, he just somehow manages to turn things around into, like, a weird power play. As we saw last week with uh, Roger. Yeah, definitely. I miss Penny Don. <laughs> Let's bring him back. Penny Don is such a bitch, and I'm here for it. Uh there is a distinct lack of pranks in this episode. <laughs> I'm a little okay with that, as one of the pranks once were, was an office full of, like, Chinamen. Yeah, that was really bad, and to be fair, I had forgotten about it. It was so bad. <laughs> uh, one more thing before we move on from Don. I do want to talk about the concept of uh, being an honest or a dishonest man, mm -hmm. uh, it, that was one of the main things from the flashback is that uh, young Dick Whitman finds out that the traveling man left the code at their at their homestead that a dishonest man lives here. So young Dick Whitman doesn't know that his that's his dad, right? And that's not his mom? I believe so, yes. That is my... Yes. He's not, like, a full-blown, like, orphan that they took him? No, he's just... I don't... Hate. The bastard child okay. of a whore. Okay, great. Love it. But he doesn't know that his dad stiffed, you know, their visitor on the work that he did. You know, he said at the, at the dinner the night before, oh, I'll, you know, I'll give this coin back to you, you know, after you do the work tomorrow. And then we see him send him on his way without paying him. So I'm wondering if little Dick Whitman thought that he was the dishonest man. You know, like, would he have had the foresight to under... Not maybe not the foresight, or the, the understanding as a child that the dishonest man that it's referring to is his dad? Or do you think that even though he doesn't have a happy family life, does he hold his, like, dad in that, in that regard at that age? Would he assume that he's dishonest? Because, you know, we see him kind of still working through it when he wakes his son up to tell him that he would never lie to him. But we know that he lies to his wife, at least lies of omission, and also lies of calling her therapist and checking up on her progress. And he lies to Peggy about how easy, you know, he acts like it was the easiest thing in the world to sell her copy when really he had to do this, like, whole thing in the meeting. So I just wonder, like, how that, you know, the concept of, being dishonest and being labeled that way as Dick Whitman is like affecting Don. I don't know if I'm, you know, I don't know if there's an answer to this or if I just wanted to point it out and why the bond between fathers and sons needs to be honest, but he doesn't need to be honest with anyone else. 
Including himself, right? Including himself, for sure. Yeah, I don't think he knows. I like I think he doesn't want he has these moments, and I think that's what it was with with Bobby, with that like promise of, you know, I'll never like lie to you or ask me anything or, or whatever. Like, I think there are moments that Don wants to drop the facade and wants to be seen. They tend to be when he's kind of like you know feeling at the end of his 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 rope or upset about whatever that says has gone on and like there are like kind of gashes or like cracks in in the armor or the the facade that he's created and it's it's interesting when he when and who he chooses to like reveal those two because the stakes are pretty low when you're waking your like six-year-old or however bobby is in the the middle of the night four or five however old he is and like you know saying ask me anything when it's like you should be having that conversation with, like, your partner, maybe, and not, like, you know, your five-year-old child. I don't know. Like, if if Don wants to be seen and to drop the act, which I think in that moment, maybe he genuinely wanted to, it seemed like a genuine moment, but then why are you doing it with, a like, a four- or five-, six-year-old, however Bobby's supposed to be, and not, like, someone who will truly actually see you and is, like, sharing their life with you like so that's that's frustrating it's like don's like wound him out self up so tight and cares so much about his own pr that like he runs himself like down running between all these women and all these spheres and all these realms to like play this part this this don draper part and i still like i think there are parts of dick whitman in there and he's he's it's he's very kind of and it's not even selective about who he reveals it to it just comes out in in weird in weird ways but not with the people you would expect it or hope it would come out with um because i think we saw a little bit of that when adam when adam stopped by right like when they're having Mm -hmm. when they're having that that coffee or lunch meeting or whatever so it's yeah i mean yeah when you I, whom I actually kind of forgot about until just now. I mean, I he had this, you kind of almost want to draw a line between Adam to Bobby because he is this like small, younger boy who idolizes him. And as, I mean, you, ideally, Don would be going to his wife wanting to open up, but that would be really hard. I can imagine after mm-hmm. years of being what they were, it's hard to break out of the roles that you're playing, even when you want to, with someone that you've been playing them for, for so long. Bobby's all fresh and new and has few expectations other than that his daddy is there. He, you know, Don wakes him up in the middle of the night asking, telling him to ask him questions, and he just wants to go to sleep, and he wants to know about fireflies. He's just a little boy. <laughs> He's not going to ask really hard questions. Why are you called Don Draper when that's not your name? Who are you really? Where did you come yeah. from? It's a very, very, very tiny step in the right direction. It is probably the least scary. And, you know, Don has been that little boy, and he's had Adam, who is also that little boy. It's probably just the easiest way for him to go i loved that and it always breaks my heart to see kids 
comforting grown-ups because that is not an emotional burden that should be placed upon a child. Mm-hmm. But he is so broken that even this little boy, who again, just wants to go back to sleep, sees it and knows that he needs a hug and he needs reassurance and comfort right there in that moment. And that was a really heartbreaking moment for me. Yeah. I hope he can continue this relationship with his little son Mm -hmm. and not find things that he has to start lying to him about the way he does with everybody else. Probably even Sally, who is starting to get to that age. Do we think Don lied to Peggy to make her feel good or to make himself feel good? Yeah, maybe to not admit that it was a struggle and that just, oh, see, everything just comes easy to Don Mm -hmm. Draper. Probably, I think, more that than for Peggy's benefit, because I don't really see Don caring enough about Peggy. Although we have heard him talk about, like, how earnest she is, and she comes off as super innocent, so maybe he is trying to protect that a little bit in her, the way it wasn't protected in him. We don't see a lot of their interaction. Peggy's not a child. No, but but she was very, you know, sweet young girl when she first came in. We don't see, we we haven't seen a huge amount of their interaction in the past though not yet so it's hard to glean much from their relationship and where it is right now unless i'm mistaken no i think that's true before we move on i do just want to want to mention highlight not forget about what after the pitch and don takes a pretty combative approach the pitch when Belgioli isn't isn't the one guy for Belgioli isn't isn't buying it right away um and then later Don says after when Ken's like wow I can't believe like you know you had the 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 guts to to do that and you know just whatever and it worked and what is I can't remember the exact quote I I didn't don't don't have my notes right in front of me unfortunately but the idea of like Ken when you get older you'll realize at some point it's not about seduction and they seduce and force like, and force like after. yeah force as, yeah that's what as it was. your backup yeah. plan so and everyone's like ken's yeah. still young he still thinks it's the other way around yeah yeah so i think when we're talking about these these systems and stuff like that that's very much a, a prevalent attitude that's that's voiced in the episode so i didn't want to totally totally lose that so it has to be said don is a very good salesman yeah Mm. it is slightly disturbing and he's someone who is very aware of it except for when he's not for as much as we can sympathize for don sometimes some of the time not all the time other times he is so stuck in his own troubles and drama that he fails to see his own personal privilege and it's quite annoying Speaking as a person of color and as a woman, just watching him and, and his sort of entitlement when it comes into, you know, having his, having his own satisfaction and people behaving the way he thinks they should and um, getting annoyed when he doesn't get his way for being who he is and others just seem to to escape whatever little trap he's created for himself basically as a person. Um as I like to usually do, uh, I noted a few people of color in the background. You have, um, and I thought it was like a lot less shoehorn than it often seems to be in the background. We still occasionally have, you know, a, a black elevator operator. There's one at the very beginning of the episode who, 
you know, is playing his role as a, as a um, service employee. He's welcoming, welcoming, he's polite. When he really doesn't say much else, uh, except when Peggy, when the service elevator is out and they have to let uh, a janitor or uh, I believe he was a janitor onto the elevator because there's no other way for him to go. And so he has to ask, he has to ask the nice young white people if it was okay. And at first I thought, oh, we're not actually going to address this. They're just going to be like, yeah, no, this is a thing. But then, and, and this guy just stands in the corner, not saying anything, not making even a noise. They're just kind of there, part of the wallpaper. And uh, then he gets off and Pete makes some snarky remark because of fucking course Pete has to say something about how, you know, um, about the whole thing. I don't remember what it was. He says, oh, I guess we really took the local. Yeah. Bitch, you made an extra stop. Yeah. One. Yeah, he has to be... Fucking relaxed. The only reason why they haven't stopped at every floor is because no one else is there yet and they're there early. And it's coming from such a place of, like, this white dude privilege and of, like, class privilege. Mm -hmm. I mean, the... It's the... When the Civil Rights Act happened? Segregation, all that stuff. All that stuff was happening at this time. You know, one of the... What was it? One of the one of the beatnik hippie guys mentions the what what he references to the ten dead kids in Biloxi, referring to the Biloxi bloody wait-ins, which was um, uh, these a series of protests in Mississippi trying to segregate the beaches uh, in Biloxi. Several people were were injured or killed. Uh, a lot of uh, the police were did fuck all to help, basically. Um, where was I going with this? I don't remember anymore. God damn it, guys. Um, referring to to that. So, I mean, it's not it's not super common for for um for people of color and white people to be sharing the same spaces that intimately definitely more common for it to be shared in that kind of level where you have like the nice white people and you have the people who are just working in service positions and are meant to be unseen and then of course the janitor is also the one person who actually sees what happens between pete and peggy but you know quote unquote no one is here right now and he doesn't count as a person that was uh i thought a pretty good moment and then uh you had the one uh the one woman of color at that party at midges who didn't get any lines in the first scene (laughs) Or possibly in the second scene. I think it was the third one where Don and the other men were going on. And she actually seems to... She's just sort of laying there, kind of like, whatever. I'm kind of stoned and enjoying my time and they're just talking. But she actually seems to set, uh, have sat up and gotten annoyed when the Biloxi thing was mentioned, even though we don't see her when it is brought up. And she gets really annoyed and says, why is it whenever we have a party... The ladies have to sit and let the men talk. And I related so hard to that moment. Yep. Yep. I wrote that in all <laughs> caps in my notes while watching the episode. Yeah. Like that one moment was the one that like made her sit up going, all right, I'm fucking tired of this. I finally got to say something. Uh, so it was, I like that they're getting a little better at how they're handling that. It's not super shoehorned. It's not this like blatant, like we are, we are making comments. And then, you know, Don makes a comment about being able to leave when the others can't because he has put on the costume of 
that society expects him to put on and he's doing the right thing even though he hates himself and the others who are as you guys mentioned before you kind of think he may feel jealous of that he doesn't get to be that person yeah it it is it's hard not to sympathize for don but at the same time he gets to be he gets to move in those fears and you have other people that we see not uh either for survival reasons other you know for reasons that it's just expected of them. Poor Sal. He's very aware of what happens if he breaks out of that handsome, oh. put-together, corporate man, follows the rules, makes the jokes about women that are slightly gross. Did you have any idea about Sal, Melissa, watching the previous episodes from today? I mean, yeah. In the first episode, he makes some comments that I was like, hmm, this, these are interesting comments. I can't wait to see where this plays out. And then... The first Sal scene, we have the girl from the switchboard who is, like, in love with him. She comes down to see him. She talks about working in a closet all day. And I was like, oh, in a closet? In a closet? Is that where is that where you are working all day? Hmm, interesting. Okay. Let me keep that in mind. And then, yeah. So I'm not surprised um, by the reveal about Sal's sexuality. I would like Sal to put away his fake Sterling Cooper self and just live his best life and go see the view out of this hotel room. And, like, this cute boy who, like, kind of works in the same industry as With him is, sad like... puppy eyes. Sensually touching his hand while they're sharing a drink. <laughs> Get out of here. Oh. Because uh, there's something... Because they both kind of have that similar like earnest but also put upon way of talking and it's really sad that him overcompensating to hide who he is sal you really couldn't tell the difference between his comments that he makes and jokes from the others because they're all performing this weird masculinity where they're all gross about women Mm-hmm. poor sal and poor lois because i mean frankly i totally get it it's a european man who loves his mama what's not to love Mm -hmm. definitely one is it a bad stereotype that only gay men like their moms i mean it's also an italian man stereotype too okay okay fair enough he's just he's just uh hitting all of it i do love that was such a good scene between the two men in the restaurant when he said I know what you're thinking. I'll show you. I was like, can I please watch this show and see what happens? <laughs> I, I know that somewhere there's some alternate reality fanfic where Sal gets to be happy mm-hmm. and loved. I should find that and put it in the show notes. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Next time. There's always next time. Uh, you... You mentioned uh, that Sal made some comments in the very first episode, and we know that there was such a huge difference, uh, time difference between when the first pilot was written and shot in the second one. But I did remember, I kept this line in mind for when this eventually did, uh, <laughs> for when this eventually did happen, and Sal says, we're supposed to believe that people are living one way, but secretly thinking the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And for watching that. And Is going, it hmm. Is it it's like he's pointing a big sign at himself, going, "It me." Yeah, that. But like, what he's what he thinks he's doing is saying, like, 
I would never be doing this. This is an insane thing to do. Ha <laughs> ha. No one would ever do this. Oh, Sal. Um, but I just scrolled back up to my first episode notes and the things that he says in that episode is um, when they're at the club with the like strange women that join mm-hmm. their party someone asks him if he has a girlfriend and he just says I'm Italian <laughs> come on instead of answering yeah. <laughs> and one of them is like oh I love this bar it's hot and loud and full of men and Sal says I know what you mean <laughs> okay okay I Sal gotcha. I gotcha yeah and I mean you know he knows he has to protect himself um and he's afraid of of letting it slip whatsoever but you know he makes his comments like that and so he's not completely keeping a tight lid on it and you know he told lois he was gonna well yeah and because he said that to Mm -hmm. a stranger and then he says to lois that he's gonna you know go try to go meet up with everyone at three or whatever but instead he goes to the lounge where this man that he has like these kind of like this sizzle with kind of half knowing what is gonna happen but i mean presumably he understands what's gonna happen but also just seems like, <gasps> what? When it ac- becomes actual reality, a possibility that may happen, he starts backpedaling out of there real fast. Which is so sad to see. It is. I just want Sal to be happy. Know. Even though he has said gross things. I don't know if it's Sal. Yeah, he's, he has said some real trash stuff. But maybe if he had the space to just be himself, he wouldn't feel the need to do mm-hmm. that. I mean, Don kind of does the same thing, too, when someone just sees this truth about him and he's just like, oh, whoa, no, wait, I didn't mean to let you see that. I'm going to back on out of here. But it's a it's a different kind of tragedy because Don kind of Don's is a little more intentional. Well, and and Don being himself isn't like criminalized, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. so like the, the there are, I think, definitely kind of that idea of like common themes and about who can who can again like leave that hallway and walk by the the police like completely you know being themselves or a version of themselves and not like harassed or you know stopped and frisked or like whatever like the rest of the the bohemian hipsters would have been but like again like i think sal's pretty textual to the episode where like he wants to go with elliot but like the risk of being caught or arrested or or anything else for or potentially for being who he is yeah yeah so that's it's like thematically i i get where it's similar but it's 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 the the cost and the risk is so much higher right so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it does point out don's more so point out don's privilege in this game that he's playing yeah yeah he gets to play that game and maybe be revealed at some point but everyone's just like oh okay i mean it's kind of a cowardly thing that you took a dead man a dead soldier's name but okay Sure. And his purple heart. And his purple heart. Or did he get, Did was he already Don Draper when he enlisted? I don't think we know we yet. We don't um. know yet. I mean, Matt and I could tell you the answer, but we don't well, know. you guys would lie straight to my face <laughs> if I asked you anyway. Uh, I will not lie, but I will also not say anything. So, yeah. Sal, a uh, tragic hero for our times. Still. Yeah, I was. I just remember starting watching Mad Men roughly around the same time as I started watching Downton Abbey, and so mm. it's it was always a kind of interesting to 
and kind of compare and trust both of them and just the different like sensibilities of both shows because having kind of more soapier tendencies or, or drama like you know at 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 times and both having kind of closeted characters at the time i think and how they how they dealt with that was was interesting i think now in in 2019 some of the stuff with sal so far feels kind of clunky but i don't know would it have been brave in 2007 probably not but maybe less like would it have been quote-unquote viewed as salacious because it was on like not premium but just basic cable like i don't know it's i'd have to have to go back and kind of do some reading because it definitely 12 years later feels kind of clunky but um Mm -hmm. um before we i guess wrap the episode with uh contact information etc i just wanted to shout out little ken cosgrove because he has been in a couple different things i have watched recently and i actually recognized him so without this podcast (laughs) i would have never been like excited to see this person on the tv screen um and one of those things was unbelievable the show on netflix and the other one was castle rock season two and i guess that he is one of the only characters to reprise their role from castle rock season one and i didn't even know him in castle rock season one i didn't even recognize him from that i recognized him from mad men so like he's out here doing work so good for him totally forgot he was in season one sorry ken yeah, and I haven't even mentioned his actual name. I've just been calling him Ken Crosgrove. The actor's name is Aaron Staten. That's not a name I'm going to remember. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. But okay, shout out. Slightly unrelated, but I, just something I thought was really cool because, I mean, feminist uh, perspectives are something that we've been talking about since day one. I was recently at an art fair in D.C., a very awesome one with local artists, with mainly mo- local artists, including uh, Carolina Peterson. And she has a book called 50 Badass Quotes by Badass Women. And a lot of it is I like uh, it. kind of cutouts of the various quotes that they said, along with a, a, a sketch or a drawing Uh, or illustration that she created at the bottom of each one and it's a really great looking book probably make a really lovely gift for someone i'm not saying it's on my wish list but it might be uh so i encourage everyone to check it out and uh support local artists cool yeah i'll definitely click that link in the show notes yeah so if there's nothing else where can we find you on the internet this week you can find me on Twitter at Pop Artery, uh, also on Instagram, same name, Pop Artery. Uh, you can also find me on the podcast, The Daily Nightly, at The Daily Nightly on Instagram, where we talk a lot about uh, Jane Austen, and I mostly talk about how trash the men are. Sounds about right. You can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, M-E-L-L-O-O-Yellow, or you can find me as the co-host of the Wild Pretty Things podcast that we... Um, talk about various tv shows movies sometimes comic books you can find me on twitter as well at at maddie m-a-t-t-y-h-u-g-h where i tweet about everything from you know costuming in the shining to you know politics and city building and star trek lots of star trek Star Trek all the time. You can follow <laughs> you can follow our podcast on Twitter as well at, at @stillgreatpod. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. And tune in next time when we discuss season one, episode six. Shoot. Shoot. Cool. See you next time.
Is there a cute boy in that show?